The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So this right here is um, the, the Barnes family kitchen table. This is actually Rebecca and I, uh, this, is our, this is our kitchen table. And uh, this is, you know, it's not it's nothing necessarily special, at it, special about it when you look at it, but this table has huge sentimental value to Rebecca and I. When we uh, were just about to get married, we're celebrating our, our 14-year wedding anniversary this upcoming summer, and a few weeks before we got married, this table got passed down to us. And so we moved to, um, uh, out of college into a, a new city, the city of Louisville. We were going to go uh, to do our graduate school there. And um, Rebecca was home in Washington, D.C., getting ready for the wedding. And I was in our home in, in Louisville, which is a brand new city for, for both of us. And um, so I was getting the house ready. And so this table had paint on it. It had designs painted on it. And so um, Rebecca told me, hey, can, can we just like... I don't really like those. Can we sand those off? And so I, we started talking about it, and I decided that I was going to refinish the top of this table before the wedding. And so I remember those, those weeks leading up, I remember sanding down the top of this table by hand. I remember going to uh, the uh, hardware store and trying to find the right finish for it. I'd never done something like that before, so I had to go to the store and, and get a finish, and I completely destroyed the top and had to start over again. And so, but I remember like working on the top of this table was this kind of this cathartic moment because here I'm a future husband and one day a future dad and I'm kind of preparing this table and envisioning my family sitting around it. And so this has, you know, a lot of my sweat in it and also blood and tears. Okay, unfortunately, it was a very dangerous operation I undertook. And so, but, but if I could go back 14 years to, to Roby 14 years ago, I could now tell about the stories that have happened around this table. Like a year later, at our one-year wedding anniversary, this table, uh, there was a tablecloth on it, and Rebecca hadn't gotten back from, from work or school yet, and so I was cooking, okay, again, taking my life into my hands. And I'd set it up all nice, and, I, and I had, we had gotten two crystal candlesticks for, uh, as a wedding gift, and when Rebecca came in, there's one crystal candlestick there with a candle lit, and you're asking me why there's only one. It's because I had dropped it while I was setting the table, the other one, which is not what you're wanting to do when you're unveiling the table for your one-year anniversary, okay? But I remember that meal that we had around this table, and I, I remember when we moved this table. This was in a moving van when we moved down to South Florida so many years ago. And I remember eventually there'd be a little scarlet, a baby scarlet around this table, and then a baby Nehemiah, our daughter and our son, around this table. And I remember all of the different games and noises and things I had to do to get one more spoonful of mashed peas into their mouth. The crazy games that I still do to get one more chicken nugget into their systems, okay? I remember it was like about right here on the table, where just not too long ago, maybe a couple months ago, Nehemiah, he was reaching for something on the table, and he slipped out of his chair, and his chin hit this part of the table. 
And he was crying on the ground, and I go to check him out, and there's a little bit of blood, and I'm really not good in emergency situations. So I scooped him up, I go over to the kitchen counter, and Rebecca still doesn't let me live this down, and I took my arm and I just moved everything out of the way, pushing it all into the sink, and I put Nehemiah down like I'm about to do emergency field surgery, like right there on him or whatever. And um, so I remember there's just so many things that have happened around this table. I mean, think about your kitchen table. There's like a relational intimacy that happens at the kitchen table, right? But it's not just family, it's, it's friends. I mean, we have friends that we've sat around this table. There's, there's, there's friends that you go out to dinner with, but there's friends that when they invite you to sit around their kitchen table, I mean, there's just another level of relational intimacy. There's friends we've had around this table. There's just this dynamic of being invited to the table. There's this level of acceptance this level of relational intimacy that happens around the table that's powerful. And so we're looking at this story in the book of Ruth and the story of this young woman who finds redemption. And there's this one critical moment in her life where she gets invited to sit at the table. And it's this critical moment in her entire redemption. And there's just something that this communicates to our story. There's a way that we are invited to the table in our story as we so desperately need redemption as well. And it also communicates what our role is in working redemption out into this community. We're going to take a look at Ruth chapter 2 today. If you have your Bible or Bible app, go ahead and open to Ruth chapter 2. And I want you to hold your place there because what I want to do before we jump back into this story, I want to zoom out for a second and get some greater context for what is happening, what's so significant in this story. If you've been journeying with us, you know that this young woman, Ruth, she is from the country of Moab. That's an enemy country of Israel. And she, while living in Moab, she marries, there's this family, Naomi and her husband Elimelech and her two sons, that are actually from Israel but living in Moab, and she marries one of Naomi's sons. And over the course of time, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies, and then Naomi's two sons die as well, and so Naomi is left as a widow, and Ruth, young Ruth, is also left as a widow. And when Naomi says, I'm moving back to my home country of Israel, Ruth says, please let me come with you. And now you've got this young Moabite girl living in a country that is completely foreign to her, living back in Israel. But we got to zoom out for a second and get the context of what God's whole design for this nation, which he says is his nation of Israel, of what his people what his whole purpose was for singling out a people. And I want to just look at, uh, real briefly, just show you a couple things in here. It helps us get context. The, I, you can stay in Ruth, but let me just read you these verses. In Genesis chapter 12, it's, it's the very beginning of the whole nation of, of Israel, all of God's people. And it all starts with this one couple, Abraham and his wife Sarah. And God calls them out and says, I'm going to make an entire nation out of your descendants. Here, but I want you to see what he says because he says, I'm also going to tell you the purpose 
for why I'm making you into my people. Look what he says. This is, uh, I'm going to read it to you, Genesis 12, verse 2. He says, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Now look what he says. So that you will be a what? A blessing. I'm calling you out as my people, but there's a purpose behind this, God says. So that you will be a blessing. That's all Abraham knows at first, but God tells him a little more. If you turned a couple pages over, you're in, this is in Genesis 18, God gives him a little more clarity. Look what he says. He says, this is God speaking, Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Abraham, he's saying, Abraham, when I say you're going to be a blessing, I mean... You will be a blessing to every nation on earth. Now, there's a long game to that and a short game. The short game is that what God is going to do is, over the course of a few generations, his people are going to be wander and end up in um, Egypt. And if you remember the moment, Moses goes into Egypt, and because they're being enslaved by Pharaoh, he stands before Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses takes God's people out and God gives them these laws. And he says, this is how I want you to live and this is what it looks like to worship the one true God. Part of the reason for that is so that all of the surrounding nations can see an example of what it looks like to worship the one true living God. And so they can look in and learn about God. But in all of those laws, there's all kinds of laws, laws on how to worship, even the dietary laws, laws on eating kosher, things like that, all of these laws, it it always assumes something. It assumes that there are going to be people from other countries that have come to live in Israel. Resident aliens that are sojourning in Israel or sojourners, people from other countries. He says, and it tells them all through the law how to handle these sojourners in their midst so that they can learn about who the one true living God is. And so, like, let me just give you an example of when God tells them this. This is in Deuteronomy 10. Here's what he says. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe, but executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Now watch what he says. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. He says, okay, you are going to have people that are needy among you. And he says, one of those groups, he talks about the, the widow, the fatherless, and then he talks about the sojourner. He says, the sojourner among you from another country is going to be there. And he says, Take really good care of them. It talks about them constantly through the law so that they can learn who the God of gods and Lord of lords is, the great, the mighty, the awesome God of the universe. And he says specifically, he says, here's why you should especially love the sojourner. He says, Israel, you know what it's like. You you were sojourners in Egypt. You remember being another nation being from another nation and living in Egypt. Do you remember what it was like? Since you experienced it, now show love and grace to the sojourner. 
One of the ways they were supposed to do that, I want to read this one last verse. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're going to jump into Ruth. One of the ways they were to love the sojourner was in Deuteronomy 24, verse 19. Look what he commands them. It's going to be up here on the screens. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. He says, when, he says, when you're reaping in the fields, he says, if your reapers drop something in the field, he says, don't pick it up, leave it for the sojourner. Excuse me. He says, leave it for the sojourner. He says, leave it for the fatherless, the widow. Leave it for the impoverished among you that are walking through. Leave it there. And, he's, and they teach this principle of gleaning. Don't harvest to the very last row in your fields or the very corners. If you drop something, leave it behind. Let the needy among you come and glean, and especially the sojourner. Why? He says, <clears throat> because you were a sojourner once. Learn from what was what happened to you. Um, our, our, down, a couple doors down from us, we have a, a neighbor, and, and they have a, a young son that's about the same age as our son. They're, they're two. And this boy that, that is a neighbor, he has this little scooter that my son loves. It's this little white car that you sit on it, and you just push it with your feet, and then it's got this little steering wheel, okay? And he loves this little scooter, and so our, our neighbor, when they, they play with it on that, the front sidewalk, and, and our neighbor was so kind enough to, to say, hey, why don't you guys just borrow it for a while? And so we took the scooter and brought it into the house, and um, my son would get on the scooter, and he'd just ride it around and around and around and around inside. He loved it, okay? And I could tell my, my daughter, who's a little bit older than him, was watching very closely because she wanted to turn. And so my son sees something and gets off the scooter. Now, you got to understand, there's toy politics, right? Okay? If you walk away from a toy, that's fair game, okay? It's a po I mean, it's a rough world out there when you're playing with toys, okay? you got to learn these toy politics. I mean, it, it's like if you get off the couch, that seat you can sit in, okay? There's rules, people. When it comes to shotgun, okay, you've got to be in sight of the car before you call shotgun. Can we all agree on this, all right? There are rules. Thank you. If you learn nothing else today, okay, let's just get some rules straight. So my son, <laughs> got an amen. Someone needed that from the Lord today. Okay. My son gets off the scooter, and my daughter skips up to it real quick, gets on it, and she knows what's going to happen. So she's pushing it as fast as her little legs can go, okay, into the next room. And I hear screaming, okay, like a fighter jet coming screaming into the other room, my son. And he says, no, that's mine. And I said, okay, guys, all right. And I, and I get my daughter off the, the scooter and I sit down with them and I said, okay, guys, who does this actually belong to? This actually belongs to our neighbor, right? Okay, so... So he's sharing it with us. So since it's been shared with us, let's share that with each other. It doesn't actually belong to us. Okay, let's learn from that. This is the dynamic that God's saying to his children. You are sojourners. 
You remember the good and the bad. He says, that's your heritage. He says, so now when there's a sojourner in your midst, we're going to care for them. Now, what's interesting about Ruth is she especially needs redemption because she is a, a widow She's a foreigner, and for all intents and purposes, she's fatherless. She's been brought into her husband's household. She lost, her, her, she lost him, her father-in-law, and she's hundreds of miles away from her household. She's, for all intents and purposes, all three. And she comes in to this foreign country to her, Israel, and she finds herself in need of redemption. Let's jump back into this story. Look at Ruth chapter 2, verse 10. Here's what it says. This is talking about Ruth. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, that's Boaz, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Now what's the backstory here? Ruth is falling down on her face before this guy, Boaz. What, what's happened? Ruth has been... She's left her. She left the house that morning from Naomi, saying, "Hey, we're here back in Israel. I, I better glean in these fields. We have no other way of supporting ourselves." And so Ruth goes out in the fields. But this is a dangerous thing. Just because that was commanded of God to let the poor and the sojourner glean doesn't mean that every household did it. And not only that, what we learn from this story is, for many of these fields, that was dangerous. A young woman on the fringes of the fields, all alone. That was not a good environment for her to be in for many of, for many of these, in many of these fields. And so she's had to look for a field that would not only be protective, but also let her glean. And the Lord takes her to Boaz's field. And while she's in Boaz's field, she not only, they not only let her glean, but they protect her. And Boaz, when he arrives, says, oh, who's this young woman? They say, it's Ruth. And he says, okay, Ruth, I want you to stay in this field because you will be safe here and you can glean here. And Ruth realizes this is a special thing that God's done. And she's bowing down before him, thanking him, saying, why are you being so kind to me? Now watch what Boaz says. This is really important. Let's pick it up in verse 11. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, look at this, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Watch very closely what Boaz says. She says, why are you being so kind to me? He says, I, I, I know I've heard what you, all that you've done for your mother-in-law, Naomi. And he says, it's my hope and prayer that the Lord would bless you. Now, tangibly, he's the one, Boaz is the one who's blessing her. He's letting her glean from his fields. That means he's going to have less of a harvest because Ruth and others are gleaning. Boaz is blessing her, but what is, we, we learn why Boaz is committed to doing that. 
He wants the Lord to bless her through him. He wants to be the instrument of God's blessing. And then look what he says, because he he expands this even further. We talked about that a little bit last week. We talked about how we are the instruments out in our workplaces, out in our fields, so to speak, of God's blessing. But there's there's, there's another wrinkle to this. Look what he says. He says, you have come from from, uh, your native land to here, to Israel. And notice what he said. This beautiful metaphor. You've come under the wings of God to find refuge. Did you notice that? It's like these mighty wings coming and taking Ruth under the wings of protection so that she could find refuge. He's saying, the moment you came into Israel, the moment you came into the community of faith, the moment you came in among God's people is the moment that you came under the refuge of God himself, is the moment you came under the wings of God. It's a powerful statement. Look how this story plays out. Let's keep going. Let's pick it up in verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Do you see this? Boaz is going far beyond the law. The law says, hey, leave some behind. But now he's saying, hey, if Ruth doesn't just follow behind you picking what you drop, picking up what you drop, let her go in front of you and and harvest and reap ahead of you. You see that? He says, in fact, as you're carrying some, pull some out and and give it to Ruth. He's just being abundantly generous. But there's another thing that's happening here. It's, It's a key moment. In the day, this is Ruth's first day gleaning, first day, and she, God takes her to Boaz's field, and now it's mealtime, probably the big meal at the end of the day before they go back out and reap before um, the sun goes down. And they're sitting down, and, and Boaz looks up, and what does he do? He invites her to the table. He says, hey, Ruth, don't just stand out there. I mean, she doesn't know if she's welcome. She knows that they have these strict dietary laws. She doesn't know if she's allowed at the table. She's probably maybe standing outside the tent. And what does Boaz notice her and says, Ruth, come here. He says, hey, guys, scoot over. Reapers, make some space. Ruth, right here at the table. Now, this is why this is an, this is an unbelievable moment, especially in this culture. Remember all the dietary laws of you can eat this and you can't eat this, the kosher laws that they have. It was common in that culture that many would say, okay, so I am only going to eat with those who eat the same way as I do. I will only eat with those who follow the same laws 
the same dietary laws that I eat with because I don't want to eat at the table and them to do something that's not kosher and then it to look like I am not following God's laws. I don't want guilt by association. I don't want to look like I'm approving of them. And so there were many that were self-righteously very particular about who they would sit at the table with. And by the way, several hundreds of years later, Jesus pretty much obliterated that social custom. And the religious elite of his day were constantly saying, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? That notorious sinner invited him over to his house and he's, he's sitting at the table with him. That's, that's unbelievable. Look, and you see Boaz is an ancient version of that. He's saying, hey, Ruth, come sit at the table. And you almost wonder as the, as the reapers are kind of scooting over to give her space, like, does he know that she's a Moabite? Do you know what they eat in Moab, Boaz? Do you know who she worships? She worships Chemosh. Boaz, you remember that they sacrifice children to Chemosh. And so Ruth comes up to the table, and let's be honest, she just arrived. She's going to act at the table probably like a Moabite. She's probably dressed like a Moabite. She doesn't know all the laws. She's probably sitting at the table like, hey, could someone pass the bacon, okay? Gasps at the table all the way around. Like, she doesn't know she's coming up to the table just like a Moabite. And he says, hey, dip your, your bread in, in the wine. And what that actually is is like a, a wine vinegar, okay? Have you ever gone to an Italian restaurant, take a soft, warm bread, dip it in the, the vinegar and the oil? So hungry right now. Just need a minute. That's literally what it's describing. There's like a wine vinegar, and they would they'd take bread and they dip it in there, and then there's roasted grain. So maybe they've just been reaping in the fields this barley, and so probably immediately before they can, they don't have time to make it into a bread, so they might just roast some of the grain quickly, and they'd be passing it around. He says, here, Ruth, dip, here, hey, pass her the, the wine vinegar. Let her dip her bread in there, and, and hey, give her some of the roasted grain. Here, Ruth, eat. He's invited her to the table. That's not just a significant symbol. That's actually significant in their culture. He's making an incredible statement of acceptance. And remember, Boaz is lifted for us as a model to follow in this whole redemption. He has invited her to the table. Now, let's, let's read the rest of Ruth chapter 2 and, and, and see how the rest of this takes place. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Now, you probably don't know what an ephah is. I don't know what an ephah is, but most of your translations will have a footnote, and it will tell you in here. It says an ephah was about three-fifths of a bushel, which we still are going to need some help with, okay, because I have no idea what that means. And it says, or 22 liters. So imagine 11 two-liter bottles. Can you imagine carrying that out of the grocery store, okay? Walking out of Publix with 11 two-liter bottles. Can you imagine that? Okay, she's got 11 two-liter bottles of grain she's going home with. That's a massive take from day one. Imagine how many loaves of bread you can make from that. that it's trying to communicate it's a lot, okay? 
And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out, uh, she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Ruth walks in. 11 two-liter bottles, drops them on his first day, drops them on the, on the floor and says, this is how we harvest in Moab. <laughs> no, that's not what she says. She puts it down and just looks at Naomi, and Naomi's like, where were you? Where, have you, where did you go? Obviously, someone has took notice of you and, and gave you so much of this, obviously. And she says, I went to this field. His name is Boaz, and he was so gracious to me. In fact, I was able to eat with them, and, and here's the leftovers. We can eat those for dinner. And she pulls those out, too. And she says, you know, th this is, it was the field of Boaz. And Naomi says, that's unbelievable. Boaz is a close relative. He's one of our redeemers. This is a technical term and an important term, and we're going to dig into that next week. But then she says, and, and, and Ruth goes on to say, and he said I could stay to the rest of the harvest. And the narrator says she did. She stayed to the rest of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest and stayed living with Naomi and God had provided for her. But I want you to see one phrase. And this is where we're going to land for today. I want you to see this one phrase that Naomi says. She says, blessed be Boaz by the Lord whose kindness has been shown to us. Now, as you're reading through this, you're thinking, okay, okay, whose kindness? Whose kindness? Boaz or the Lord? As you're reading, okay, what, what, what are you talking about? Who is Naomi talking about? Because remember, Naomi, if you remember a couple weeks ago we talked about, it, she's angry at God right now. So what's... What's Naomi saying? Is, is she giving all the credit to Boaz or is she giving the credit to the Lord? What's she saying? Here's what's going on. The ancient Hebrew narrator, he's messing with you. He's leaving it ambiguous. He's leaving it for you to tease out and figure out. What does Naomi mean? What's going on in her heart? Is it the Lord who's showing kindness or is it Boaz? Because here's what's really happening. It's both. Because the moment that Ruth came in among God's people, what did Boaz say? The wings of the Lord have come around you and found refuge. Here's what this means. The same that was true in that time is true today about God's people. 
God's people are to be his wings of refuge around a hurting and broken and lost world. If you could remember one thing from this passage, God's people are to be his wings of refuge. Can I put it like this? In the entire world, the safest place for someone who is hurting, broken, or lost, the safest place The place where the wings of God's protection, the place where they'll find refuge, the place where they'll be able to walk through the difficulty, walk through the pain, ask the questions, wrestle with what's going on. The safest place in the world where God is putting his wings of refuge around them, the safest place should be among God's people. Church, this should be the safest, most warm, welcoming, accepting place for the broken, needy, and lost to find the love and truth of God. So let me put this in three categories. Here's what we're being invited to do. To follow after Boaz and say, come to the table. So let's put it in three categories, three things. Here's the first one. Invite to the table. We're called to go out. Part of each of our role in being transforming agents into South Florida. See South Florida transformed by the gospel in our generation. Each of us, our role in that is to invite to the table is to go out and to find a friend who's hurting or lost or needy and say, hey, why don't you come to church with me? Bring them into God's people where all of the gifts, as the Bible describes, of the body of Christ, all the different gifts are all pouring in and blessing and loving on that person. That, this should be the safest place. We should invite them in. Some of you say, no, no, I invite. I invite my friends. It, it just so happens they're Christian friends and they go to another church. Don't invite them. Seriously. Don't invite them. They're already under the shelter of God's... They are, they are serving there. They are leading there. They are a part of that body. That's not who you should invite. We actually need to make space here for people who aren't in the refuge under God's wings. So here's who you should invite. It's the stranger that you come across and you strike up a conversation and say, oh, so are you new to South Florida? Well, actually, yeah, we, we just moved into town, and oh man, I know that's so difficult to find that support network, and you got to find so many things, and say, you know, I I just want you to know, where I find my support network, and where our friends are, and our our kids' friends, is is at our church. We love our church, and so I don't know if that's a help to you, but um, you're always welcome to to come to our church. Here's some information. You give them an invite card, or you text them the website, and you say, hey, you're welcome to come. Maybe you follow up with them on Saturday, say, hey, by the way, if you're wanting to come uh, this weekend, I, I'll, I'll, I'll wait for you in the lobby. Just tell me when you're going to be here. Invite in. It's a friend. It's a friend or a family member. Seize church every opportunity to invite them in. Moms, on Mother's Day, you wield mom power. 
You wield that power, okay? On Mother's Day, there will be a, a strong, clear declaration of the gospel. Leverage your influence to get family here. They cannot say no to you on that one day. Leverage your influence. Invite in so they can come into the refuge of God's people. It's that friend. Look for every opportunity. It's the beginning of a new series. Invite them here. It's a holiday. Invite them. It's a special, use a special event as an opportunity. How about in a couple months at the grand opening of our kids' space? When you have a family or, um, that, that has kids, say, oh, you've got to come with me to church. We're just brand new kids' space. It's beautiful. You've got to bring your kids. We're doing this big celebration for the grand opening. We have to actively invite to the table. That's number one. Here's number two. Once we invite to the table, we've got to welcome to the table. One of the most critical things that we can do is make this the most welcoming environment we can possibly have. Let me just tell you why that's important. Let me actually show you why that's important. We send out um, first-time guest surveys via email to someone who comes here. If they're a first-time guest, we send out a survey to get their feedback. And, um, and sometimes people give us feedback, which is great. We love hearing that. And one of the questions on there is, you know, what did you like? You know, what was your first impression? And then there's one question that says, what was your, like, overall impression? Like, what was your big takeaway? And just in the last couple months, let me just read you three of what they said was their overall takeaway. This is what one person said. I literally feel such a homey atmosphere, and I think that's so important. You feel like you belong. Another person says, overall, like this is their big takeaway, a welcoming place. Here's another one. I really enjoyed the experience. Didn't feel like an awkward newbie. Okay, why is that such a big deal to people when they're coming in? Like, uh, is that what we want them to feel? Why is that such a powerful first impression when people leave? Like, why is that so important to people that that's their overall feeling? Because one of the biggest fears walking in among the people of God is I'm not going to be welcomed, I'm not going to belong, and I'm going to be judged. If they knew who I was. They're driving there. What, what am I doing? Why am I going? I'm going to stick out like a sore thumb because they all have their lives together and, and they don't know how much that I'm struggling. Now, we know we all don't have our lives together. <laughs> None of us do. But as they're driving in, they don't know that. If they know how I live my life, if they know what I believe, if they knew what I was struggling with, if they knew what I, I did last night, if they, if they knew I'd stick out like a sore thumb, but when they come into a welcoming environment, do you realize that's the first piece of the gospel that they get? It's God's people saying, welcome in under the wings of God. You are loved and accepted. That's the first piece of the gospel. Do you see that? So let me put it like this. If West Pines is your church home, like if this is your home, you are on the greeting team. Do you realize that? You're on the greeting team. When you come to church, don't just come to church like, okay, now I can receive. Come to receive. Come to see, oh, there's my friend. Come to see your friend. But also find someone you don't know. Welcome them. Make this a warm place. Here's the other thing you need to know. Be ready for who we are going to welcome in here. It's Moabites who still don't totally know the difference between worshiping Chemosh and worshiping Yahweh, who still look like a Moabite and dress like a Moabite. 
and talks like a Moabite. In other words, there are going to be people in here that desperately need to know the message of love of the gospel and desperately need to know the truth of God. And anyone who walks in here to hear those things will absolutely be welcomed. Yeah, but if there's people who are living a completely different lifestyle or a completely different thing that's different than what we believe, aren't we compromising by letting them in, in here? Absolutely not. We stand on the truth But how will they ever have a chance to hear the truth in the gospel if they don't have a safe place to be welcomed and lovingly have space to ask questions and let God work work in their life? We've got to invite to the table, welcome to the table, and here's the last, last one. We have to make room at the table. Got to slide over and add a chair. Guys, when you're going out to hang out, invite that new guy that came to your community group. Ladies, if you're going out on a play date with your kids, invite someone with you. Couples, if you're going out and hanging out, invite a new couple with you. Widen the circle. If you're in a community group, invite new people in. That's not just the community group leader's job. That's everyone's job. If you are in a community group, everyone in the group is inviting new people in. You say, well, I mean, I know, but when there's a new person there, it throws off the dynamic of the group, and you're just in such a a good rhythm, and it just throws everything off. Yep, it does. (laughs) But you've got to ask yourself a question. Are your friendships there to serve your needs? Or is the foundation of all Christian relationships washing feet? We're in relationships to serve each other. And in the process of serving each other, we find so much more fulfillment than we possibly could ever by hoarding our relationships and our friendships. If you want to know what real, genuine, powerful Christian relationships look like, make room. It's going to cost you something. Why would we do that? Because someone made room at the table for you. So now make room at the table for others. More pointedly, when it really comes down to it, the table of God's people, the table of those who are in with God, accepted by God, when it really comes down to it, none of us belong at that table. All of us, because of the sin in our life, don't belong at, whole, at the holy, almighty God of God and Lord of Lords table. We don't be- deserve to be among God's people. None of us. Because of our sin. But one powerful Redeemer, at the personal cost of his life, said, I'm making room for you. At the table. What did he do to make room? What did Jesus do to make room? It's really simple. It's actually not very complex. I want to close with this. The earliest memory I have of ever going to church is I was about four years old. And in Sunday school, I had made, taken these two popsicle sticks and I had taken some yarn and I had just, we, the, the project was to, to wrap the yarn around it and turn those two popsicle sticks into a cross. I remember I had the cross, 
and I showed my parents, and I said to my parents, hey, I want to go show this to pastor. Now, we had many pastors on staff there, but um, the, the lead pastor, we, uh, I, I always just called him pastor, okay? And um, I, I want to show this to pastor, and I told my parents, I said, I, I want to show this, and they said, well, you know, I mean, he's, he's going to preach, and there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people around, he might be busy, you know, if we can see him, you know, that maybe, and so um, we were walking through, and I and just so happened to run into him, I was so excited, ran into him as he was going into um, what we called the sanctuary, into big church, is what we called it. And I said, and I went up to him, you know, and I, I'm like so intimidated, but I said, look at this, pastor, and he gets down on a knee. And he takes the cross out of my hands. And he says, this is good. He says, do you know what this means? I said, well, well, Jesus died on the cross. And he said, that's good, son. Jesus died on the cross. Rose again from the dead. So that you could be welcomed in heaven. And a four-year-old never forgot it. It's not complicated. It's faith like a child. We get welcome to the table because Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead to pay for our sins so we can spend eternity in heaven. You may say, look, I'm not at the table. I feel a thousand miles away from God. You're being welcome to the table today. You're being welcome to say you're part of God's family now. You can know for sure that you'll spend eternity in heaven, which, by the way, one of the metaphors for heaven is a large banquet through eternity. You're being invited to the table. It's just where you receive the invitation. Can I lead you in a, in a quiet prayer? Would you all bow your heads and, and close your eyes with me today? That may be you here today. You might be saying, look, I, I'm ready. I want to take that seat at the table. I, I, I want to put my faith in Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross. I believe that he rose again from the dead. I, I'm ready. I, I want to be reconciled to God. I believe he's God. And I, I just want to take that step. I want to know for certain I'm going to spend eternity in heaven. I just I want to be saved. Lead me in that next step. Is that you? might be sitting here saying, I want to know that I'm saved. You might be watching online, sitting on your couch, sitting at, at a table somewhere or in a chair saying, look, I, I want to take that step. If that's you, you can do that with just a simple prayer, receiving this invitation from Jesus. If that's you, I want to just pray these simple words that I'm going to pray. Make these your words in your heart to God. He hears your words. So just repeat these in your heart after me. Just say this. Thank you for welcoming me in, Jesus. I'm an outsider, but you've drawn me to your table. Thank you for dying on the cross to pay for my sins. Thank you for rising from the dead. I believe you did. Thank you for giving me heaven for eternity. I give you my life. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. 
or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.